We're reading tonight from the book of Jonah, and we're kind of in the middle of the book in Jonah chapter 3. And that's page 928 if you want to follow it in the Pew Bibles. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne He took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And we thank God for his word. It's all too easy to get carried along by the story of Jonah and his whale. It's a tale we've known since Sunday school, and I suppose as adults we sometimes find it rather fishy, a bit hard to swallow, you might say. But as someone once declared, my faith does not depend on the credibility of Genesis or the edibility of Jonah. And behind all the hype and the hyperbole of the great city and the great fish and the cows and the goats in sackcloth coats lies a very challenging adult tale. Because Jonah is a story about the wideness of God's mercy. It's a story that reawakens us to God's amazing grace, the grace we've been singing about in saving you and me. It's a story that shows us God's patient working in us, in our lives, when we still haven't got it, still haven't grasped how 
wide and long and high and deep is his love and his purposes beyond our working out. And it's an unfinished story. It's a story that invites our response as the privileged bearers, the carriers of such a great salvation towards the rest of the world that our God also loves. It's maybe helpful to remind ourselves of the context to God's controversial call and Jonah's rebellious response. In chapter 1 and verse 1, we're told that Jonah is the son of Amittai, to whom the word of the Lord came. And this kind of phraseology puts Jonah very firmly in the historical category of the prophets of Israel. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, just as it came to, say, Samuel or Amos or Jeremiah. So Jonah, in this language, he's a fully accredited prophet of God, even if he doesn't show it in his attitudes or behavior. And we learn, in fact, from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was, in fact, an intensely patriotic preacher. He prophesied during the reign of a king called Jeroboam II in maybe the 760s BC. And already he proclaimed that Israel's borders would be enlarged greatly by God's work, and Israel's former king Jehoash had done exactly that. So Jonah really existed. He's not just a figment of a nice story. He really existed. He's a real historical figure. His prophecies really did come good, as the true prophets always do. And his court and his temple connections show that he was absolutely kosher. But now we see God giving Jonah an entirely different ministry task. And he tells him in chapter 1, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And this was a prophetic calling like none other. This was the mother of all missions because it's a call to Jonah to get out of Israel, to leave the confines of the king's court and the safe sanctuary of the temple where God dwelt and to go out to a pagan city over 500 miles away. You see, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians weren't just any old bog-standard kind of pagans, but they were really, really nasty. Assyria was the most violent and the cruelest of all ancient states, and Jonah's Israel lived in constant threat of invasion, if not outright annihilation. The Emperor Shalmaneser, his YouTube propaganda videos, they were full of boasting about his torture methods, from dismemberings to beheadings. His militants burnt and skinned their opponents alive, including teenage kids. They cut off both legs and one arm from their captives, leaving one arm left so that they could mockingly shake hands as their victims lay there dying. Nice. So for Jonah, going off and prophesying to Nineveh would be like us sending a wee summer mission team to the very heart of Islamic State. So it makes complete sense to learn that Jonah hightailed it off to Tarshish 
on a one-way ticket to who knows where, because Tarshish is about as far from Nineveh as you could possibly get. You see, how could Jonah destroy the interests of Israel for which he'd been working all his life? How could he go off and preach God's message to such godless extremists, archenemies of his own people? To go off and preach in Nineveh would mean professional suicide, if not almost certain literal death. But at the back of Jonah's little mind was an even bigger worry, staggering in its enormity. You see, Jonah was a prophet. He knew the word of God. He knew the scriptures. And he knew that to threaten Assyria with God's judgment, to preach a warning to her, would be by logical implication to raise the possibility that the warning might just be heeded, that the Assyrians might just repent, that God just might, incredible as it seems, show mercy on the Assyrians and relent. Knowing God as the prophet Jonah did, a God who'd revealed himself as a gracious and compassionate God, a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, always ready to forgive the wickedness and the rebellion of his own people, Israel. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, raised an alarming suspicion in Jonah's theological mind. Could God now be planning to extend such mercy equally to others? This was a terrifying possibility. It kind of broke all Jonah's moral and spiritual and ethical boundaries. It pushed the limits of faith and justice to utter incredulity. Have mercy on Israel's archenemy, A.S. God couldn't possibly, could he? So Jonah disobeys God's command. In fact, he runs and runs and runs in the complete opposite direction, and he gets on this boat to Tarshish. And we all know what happened next. God sent a storm. The sailors drew lots. Jonah was cast overboard to appease God's wrath. But then God sent along a great fish to save him from the watery depths. And after three days in the belly of the fish or the whale or whatever it was, a very bedraggled Jonah was washed up on the beach. And this is exactly where we pick things up in chapter 3. And for a second time, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And he calls him once again, get up, go to Nineveh. And this time it says, Jonah obeyed. And he arrives in Nineveh and he proclaims the message that God there reveals that in 40 more days, God will overturn her. And his preaching campaign meets with incredible results. The whole city, from top to bottom, from the king on his throne to the cow in the field, accepts the message and repents. And and Jonah should be absolutely ecstatic. He's turned a whole nation to God. He's right up there with Billy Graham and J. John and all the rest of them. He's an evangelist. But as we'll see, the story's a bit more complicated than this. So what does God have to say to us through this incredible turn of events? Well, if we haven't grasped it already, Jonah's story demonstrates the wideness of God's mercy the utter wideness of God's mercy. 
Twice God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. He's fairly persistent, isn't he? Even in the storm at sea, where ironically Jonah meets the sailors, the very pagan idol worshippers he's trying to evade, we see signs of God's compassion and grace. The sailors repent of their sin and turn and pray to Jonah's God in faith. Enough said. Not only that, but we then get the whole city of Nineveh responding to Jonah's message in its entirety. Notice the details about Nineveh here in chapter 3. It's described as a very large city, verse 3. This could mean a very big city, literally, or a big city, a large city before God. In other words, a place that matters with inhabitants about which God cares deeply. In fact, it tells us the city was so big that to cross it fully and to preach God's message everywhere would take three days' journey. And we know from archaeology that Nineveh's city walls alone were seven and a half miles long, and the region outside the walls, greater Nineveh as it were, was another 40 miles further out. So Jonah only went a day's journey. He preached to only a third of the population, presumably. Verse 4. Yet in that one single day, his preaching won over the entire population. And he warns that God will overturn the city. But the word he uses can mean both to overturn, but also to turn around. And turning around is exactly what happens next. Verse 5 tells us that the extent of the Ninevites' repentance is absolutely vast. This is mass revival from the top to the bottom, from the greatest to the least on the social spectrum. Just as Jonah had been called to arise and go to Nineveh, so now the king of Nineveh arises, but it's only to step down from his throne and to cast off his royal robes in a gesture of submission and repentance, to clothe himself with ashes and to sit in the dust and humility. And the Ninevites repent not just personally but also corporately as each person vows to renounce their evil ways and their violence and to treat their neighbours justly, turning round the social and economic and civic order entirely. What's more, they show their sincerity with this mega fast, not just refraining from food but from drink as well. Even the animals fast, adding their bellowing to the cries of lamentation, wearing coats of sackcloth and rolling in the ashes. And it sounds comical, but it shows the extent of their devotion and their dedication. In an agricultural society, not to feed and water your animals means real economic sacrifice, real privation. And we're told, too, that the people are calling urgently upon God, And the word used in the original is the one true God, Elohim. And this would come as a real shock to Jonah's readers, for the Assyrians were renowned as idol worshippers. The effect of Jonah's preaching is absolutely stunning. And isn't Jonah, limited though he is, isn't he a foretaste of God's desire to reach not just the Jews but the Gentiles also? The whole world, every tongue and tribe and nation and language and people with his message of mercy for the repentant sinner who calls on him in reverence and fear. Doesn't Jonah's success declare and make clear that God at all times and in all places 
desires that all humanity, all of society, the social and economic and cultural order, the created order even, should come to know him and be reconciled to him. Jesus himself talks about the preaching of Jonah and the repentance of the Ninevites as a sign and example for his own day and generation. You see, God loved the Ninevites despite their wickedness and their foolishness. He'd shown himself radically willing to seek out this most distant, this most intransigent of peoples and draw them to themselves. And that such an enemy as Nineveh could be transformed can't be explained in ordinary human terms. This is an extraordinary supernatural event. This is all of divine grace. And actually, isn't the story of how God dealt with Nineveh actually the story of how he deals with us? You see, while we were still sinners, while we were still a very long way off, While we were still God's enemies, not even doing anything good, Jesus Christ died for us. And so the story of Jonah is a gospel in microcosm, which in turn begs a crucial question. Which of us loves our enemy, or even our neighbor, enough to hold out to them the word of life, so that they too can escape from the wrath to come? so that their lives can be turned around. And doesn't the story of Jonah encourage us that God can work in ways we'd never think of and that God can bring to faith people that we'd never dream of? You see, the story of Jonah's preaching to Nineveh should give us great hope for the organizations and the courses that we run, for the events that we put on, for our unsaved family members and friends, for our city, for our nation, for our world. Because if God can get through to the Ninevites, then God can get through to absolutely anyone. And nor is God's working limited by our own efforts, faltering and inadequate and fearful as we might be. Because if God can speak through Jonah, whose message was minimal, whose commitment was half-hearted, He only went a day into the city. He didn't even complete his mission. And whose attitudes were in an edifying mix of pride and self-righteousness and resentment and rebellion. Well, if God can speak through Jonah, then God can speak through anyone. So if we're here and God has laid certain people on our hearts, but we're thinking, well, there's no point speaking to A or B or C. They just won't listen or want to know. Let's take courage from the example of the Ninevites and from the fact that God saved you and me. Let's not forget how much of a miracle our own salvation was. Let's not forget the miracle of grace that led us to respond to the Lord. You see, we have a God who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, and we have a God who wants to work in all-surpassing power through us, despite our failings, and our weaknesses. There's treasure in these jars of clay just waiting to be released. The wideness of God's mercy. But then that brings us to the real issue of the story. 
the self-preoccupation of God's people. Because we have a conundrum, really. We have a puzzle. We have this Jonah, the preacher, who's a reluctant missionary. And how he, why he reacts to God's call and to the successful completion of his mission with such vehement anger and misery. You see, while this is indeed a story about God's compassion for the lost, it's just as much a story about God's work in Jonah, the reluctant missionary. And consistently throughout the book of Jonah, we see Jonah in a very negative light, in contrast to the eagerness of the pagans to hear and respond to what little they've learnt of the Lord. Jonah flees as far as possible from God's first command. When he's on board the ship in the storm, unlike the pagan sailors, he doesn't even recognize that God's at work, let alone repent or pray. The sailors are afraid of divine wrath, and each one's crying out to his own God, and where is Jonah? Well, he's down below, sleeping in the hold. He makes no effort to share his faith in this crisis. In fact, he openly tells the sailors, I'm running away from God. The sailors cry out to God in prayer and offer sacrifices, but from Jonah we hear absolutely zilch. As one commentator puts it, his private faith is no public use. And even when Jonah's in the belly of the whale, in chapter 2, miraculous rescue though this is, he just resorts to pious prayers. He looks back to the temple in Jerusalem and he continues to condemn pagan idol worshippers as worthless. You see, Jonah just doesn't get it, does he? He just doesn't see God's mercy and grace, even when he's deliberately running from God, and God's saving him from his wrath, and he's reached the very depths. And when Jonah does arise and go to Nineveh, his message is half-hearted, to say the least. He does the bare minimum. He goes only one day into the city, His message is very brief, and he's almost enjoying preaching this message of hell and brimfire and damnation. And at the end of it all, in chapter 4, he sets up a camp to wait and watch for Nineveh to burn. And far from being ecstatic at Nineveh's response, he's disgusted to the core when they repent. He's not even true to his own message. And chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, expose the very bitter heart of Jonah's thinking. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he burned with anger. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O God, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see, all Jonah's theological suspicions have come true, and that's why he's so angry. He's absolutely bristling with self-righteous anger at God's graciousness and mercy to the pagan Ninevites. He simply doesn't realize that he himself is in desperate need of grace, even though God's only just rescued him from such a powerful storm. So God sighs, and God patiently deals with Jonah's heart once again, appointing not a storm and a great fish this time, but a gourd tree and a worm. And you can see the rest of chapter 4 for further details. 
Now, we're not wrestling with so hard a call as Jonah's to go to Nineveh, but isn't there really a bit of Jonah in all of us? Are there not people we too love to hate, be it a distant terrorist state or simply a really difficult colleague or neighbor or family member, or dare I say it, a fellow Christian worker? Do we too not struggle sometimes to associate with or still less reach out to certain people? Do we ever feel kind of resentful when God blesses or clearly works his grace through others? People we think we're far better than, just like Jonah. Do we ever feel spiritually and morally and theologically superior? You see, the Bible is full of stories of God's own chosen people, God's saved people, who fail to understand and share his grace with others. From the prodigal son's older brother to the early laborers in the vineyard to the smug Pharisee vis-a-vis the wailing tax collector. And we read these parables and we nod and we say, yes, 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 but we never seem to realize that God's trying to get to us in all of this. And maybe like Jonah, we need to re-experience God's compassion, God's salvation, God's grace all over again, perhaps the hard way before we can effectively carry out God's commission, the compassion and then the commission. Is the biggest obstacle to mission not so much the presumed unwillingness of those who need to hear the gospel as the hard-heartedness and the pride and the shallowness and the self-preoccupation of our own hearts as Christians? And is the biggest barrier to God's work in this world, in fact, the life of his own people? God cries out in chapter 4, Nineveh is a city of 120,000 people and animals too, who don't know their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned about that great city? In the world today, there's about 7,098 people groups who've never yet heard of Jesus. That's 3.5 billion individuals, to say nothing of those in the so-called Christian West, in our own city even, who need to hear the good news all over again. God cares about these people deeply. How much do we care safe in OPC? And then there's another issue. Do we ever react badly like Jonah did when God doesn't do as we see fit or when God fails to live up to our expectations? Jonah only seemed to want God as long as God responded on his terms, did just what Jonah as a patriotic Jew expected and wanted him to do, smite Israel's enemy, Nineveh. Jonah's idol was Jewish nationalism, and our idols, of course, will be something else. But do we too only worship God on our own terms? Have we made God into an idol, in other words? When God doesn't respond as we want, do we react like Jonah with fury and despair and disbelief when the real God reveals himself as opposed to the counterfeit we'd rather have? Or are we prepared to say, God, you are my God, even when I don't understand what you're doing and I like it even less. 
Will we allow God to be God in our own Nineveh as well as in our Jerusalem and in the storm as well as in the safe and the comfortable place? The self-preoccupation of God's people. And then finally, the unfinished story. I said at the beginning that Jonah's is an unfinished story. And we see Jonah running and running and running and God chasing after him and never letting go of him. And we get the word and we get the storm and we get the fish and we get the plant and we get the worm. Uh, And the book of Jonah is full of the hard lengths God goes to to show Jonah who he really is, to teach him his character of love and compassion and mercy, and then to help him share that grace with others. But while God's the God of infinite second chances, we're never actually told how Jonah responds, whether in the end he eventually has compassion for Nineveh or not. But the ending of our story can be completely different, can't it? For now one greater than Jonah is here. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so on the third day Jesus rose again from the tomb. But there the parallelism parallelism ends. Jonah sacrificed himself unwillingly for the sailors. But Jesus willingly entered the utter depths of hell and death for us. Jonah refused to accept God's love for the Ninevites. Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies, while we were still a very long way off. Jonah had no compassion for the great city of Nineveh. But Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and he had compassion for the crowds and he turned his face towards Jerusalem to go willingly to the cross. And on the cross, God's wrath was fully met and justice finally met with mercy as Jesus covered our sinfulness, our pride, our self-righteousness, our resentment, our self-preoccupation with his sinless and selfless utter perfection. You see, it's only Jesus, isn't it, as we were singing. It's only Jesus who can show us the immeasurable and unfathomable extents of God's grace and love. And it's only Jesus who can change our hearts and our attitudes. It's only Jesus who can give us his compassion for the world he so much loves. He who is forgiven little loves little, But he who is forgiven much, loves much. We love the city, we love the world, because Jesus first loved us. Let me try and earth this a little bit from some things that have happened to me. I've been very struck by one phrase in this chapter of Jonah. When the king of Nineveh responded to God's message and declared a time of fasting and repentance, his question was, in verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and have compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And of course, these folk lived a long time before the coming of Jesus, and they just didn't know, and Jonah couldn't possibly see how God could ever reconcile his justice with his mercy. And we know now, of course, that this happened once for all at the cross when Jesus declared that it is finished. But all over the world today, people are still asking, 
Who knows? Is there a God? Could this God possibly have mercy? Could he have compassion on us so that we will not perish if we try hard enough or if we do all the right stuff, whatever that is? Who knows? But the answer to the question, who knows, is, of course, that we know. I know the answer and you know the answer. I remember the very first time I realized this and I was in the first year at university and I was sitting one day in this library in Oxford and it's an amazing library with a copy of every book on print and that was before Kindle and Internet and Google and so on. And there were all these highly intelligent people and real scholars reading books and great tomes and so on. And it struck me, you know, these people are working so hard because they're looking for purpose and they're looking for truth. I'd just become a Christian. And it occurred to me that, well, I have the truth and I know the truth and it's Jesus. And it's really the ultimate knowledge, isn't it? To know that God is, to know who God is, to know that God loves and to know that God has got the answer to the entire human condition and to all of human suffering and to life after death. I know. Another time I was in China on holiday and we were driving through some huge new mega city and there was massive regeneration going on and miles upon miles of new skyscrapers and apartment blocks and a family unit in each flat in each apartment block laid out in a grid formation, just masses and masses of them. And it hit me again. You know, I know the truth of Jesus, and these millions of people probably do not. And then more recently, last month, I was visiting Margaret when she was in the Royal Hospital. And I was praying with her, and I became very aware over that week that the patient in the next bed was listening very intently to every word we'd said. And she said to me, I try and talk to God every day. I don't know if he hears me. Um, So I prayed with her too that God would touch her and God would heal her and that she'd know his love and his presence clearly. And all the patients in the ward said amen at the end, which was a bit startling, really. (laughs) I've never done anything like that. And um, Margaret was discharged the next day and I never saw them again, so I don't know how they're getting on. But... It stayed with me. I know the truth. Do they? So let's go out from this service tonight thinking, I know. I have this certainty. I have this hope. I have this privilege. Not because I'm superior. Not because I deserve it. Because goodness knows we don't. But because God has chosen all of love and grace to be gracious unto us. I don't know how God wants to work out this knowledge in your life. Uh, And the answer will be different for each of us because we've each got different personalities and gifts and opportunities and and contacts. But what matters is that we share that knowledge wherever God happens to call us. Jesus said in the Great Commission, as you go or wherever you go, go make disciples. And you see, the answer to the question, who knows, is that we know. And we who have that knowledge dare not keep it to ourselves. Not from duty, not from burden, not from resentment like Jonah, but because of God's great mercy and his infinite compassion. The wideness of God's mercy, 
the self-preoccupation of God's people, but the coming of Jesus, the second Jonah, and the unfinished story. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you that you've come into our lives through Jesus and you've changed our lives around. And we thank you that we've experienced your grace and mercy and love. For some of us, it's recent. For some of, it's, some of us, it's a long time ago. But we pray you'd reawaken us to the reality of what you've done for us again tonight. We pray, Lord, you'd fill us afresh with your spirit and give us your compassion, your grace, so that we can reach out to others in the world you so much love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.